1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Disney Plus credentials are already on sale in the black market. India reassures nuclear power partners that the Kundan-Kulam incident didn't compromise safety. Documents pertaining to Chinese and Iranian security operations leak. Internet restrictions go into force in Iran and Venezuela. Russia offers an Internet control treaty at the UN. The Lizard Squad might be back, and Phineas Fisher has also resurfaced. And happy birthday, SISA. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, November 18th, 2019. We open with some depressing but foreseeable news from the cybercriminal underworld. Disney launched its Disney Plus video streaming service last Tuesday, hours after the debut. Hackers were already offering compromised user account credentials in various dark web markets. They're said to be selling for just $3 to $11, a ZDNet investigation reports. India has reassured its Russian partners that the cyber incident at the Kudankulam nuclear power station did not affect safety or operations, the Hindustan Times reports. Adam Stroy Export is assisting with construction at Kudankulam, which when complete will have six supplied Viver Vever-1000 reactors – the two countries have also cooperated on the installation's security. The New York Times has published a large set of leak-classified documents outlining Chinese surveillance and detention of its Muslim Uyghurs minority. The repression has been particularly severe in the Xinjiang province. This was a conventional leak, apparently from within the Chinese government, and that there was a leak at all suggests that party discipline may be shakier than it's often thought to be. Many of the measures the government is taking are directed at Uyghur's university students and aim to persuade them that detained relatives are safe and that they, the students, should be grateful for the detentions. Foreign policy says that much of the surveillance technology used in Xinjiang is being built into the smart cities component of the Belt and Road Initiative. Authorities in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan are said to be particularly interested in cooperating with Beijing. The second set of leaked material exposes Iran's role in fomenting domestic unrest in Iraq. Much of Tehran's activity has taken the form of long-term, patient, cultivation of agents and deployment of influence, of a kind long practiced in espionage. The Revolutionary Guard's Quds Force is said to have taken a leading role in Iraqi operations. Facing its own domestic unrest, Tehran has also begun restricting access to the Internet within Iran, Wired, TechCrunch, and other outlets say the proximate cause of the problems the regime is facing in the streets is Tehran's decision to increase the price of gasoline by 50%. The NGO Netblocks, which maps government-produced outages, calls the blackout near total, with connectivity down to between five and seven percent of normal levels. The AP reports that the government's principal aim of cutting off internet access has been to inhibit street violence by depriving protesters of their customary means of communication and organization. NetBlocks also reports that Venezuela's government restricted access to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube on Saturday. The targeted restrictions were also intended to prevent protesters from organizing and communicating before anticipated demonstrations advocating democratic elections and the replacement of the Chavista regime in Caracas. The U.S. opposes a Russian-led cybercrime treaty proposed in the U.N. on the grounds that the pact would solidify authoritarian control over the Internet, the Washington Post reports. The measure is expected to come up for a vote today. A European diplomat speaking to the Post on condition of anonymity offers what the Post characterizes as a representative take on the measure. Quote, The big picture is that Russia and China are seeking to establish a set of global norms, that support their view of how the Internet and information should be controlled. They're using every means they can in the UN and elsewhere to promote that. This is not about cybercrime. This is about who controls the Internet. Russia is offering the treaty, which has the name Countering the Use of Information and Communications Technologies for Criminal Purposes, as an alternative to the Budapest Convention, which since 2001 has been ratified by 64 countries, including the U.S., Japan, and all but two of the EU's member states. The draft contains a good deal of what the Post calls unobjectionable statements about the rise in digital crimes and their impact on the stability of critical infrastructure. But it's clearly aimed at building out Internet sovereignty in ways that would criminalize much ordinary online activity. The resolution's sponsors include, beside Russia, Russia, China, North Korea, Myanmar, Nicaragua, Syria, Cambodia, Venezuela, and Belarus. Where's Iran, one asks? If the techno-libertarians of Tehran aren't co-sponsoring, what does that say about the likely effect of the treaty? Two names from the quasi-hacktivist fringes have resurfaced. The first is the Lizard Squad. Remember them? Someone claiming to represent the squad told The Independent that his group was behind the failed DDoS attack on the UK's Labour Party. The Lizard Squad, which said it had disbanded in 2014, but whose name has surfaced episodically since, is best known for low-grade distributed denial-of-service attacks against online games and a failed extortion attempt involving a search for non-existent intimate photographs of singer Taylor Swift. These are a fair representation of the group's seriousness of purpose. But, of course, while the action against labor did show the imperfect execution of the old lizard squad, it's entirely possible that the act was the work of some other individual or group. Anarchist collectives have no very rigorous forms of organization, modes of operation, or intellectual property, and the lizard squad's name and logo may easily have been appropriated by some other threat actor— It's simple enough to tweet with an emblem of a high-living lizard dressed vaguely the way Eustace Twilly appears on the New Yorker's masthead, only with more of a stoner aspect to the lizard's demeanor than we ever saw in Mr. Twilly. But maybe that's just the way lizards look, because the living's hard out there among the reptiles. In any case, the Labour Party has reassured its members and others that the attack failed, there was no breach, and the party lost no data in the incident. The other blast from the past came in the form of an announcement from Phineas Fisher, who is offering a bounty of hundred that's $100,000 U.S. currency, but payable naturally in Bitcoin or Monero, in exchange for hacks of capitalist expropriators. The social change-minded cybercriminal calls his initiative the hacktivist bug hunting program. He offers, as examples of worthy targets, South American mining and livestock companies And that activist they particularly dislike, the oil services company Halliburton. Weiss notes that the purse was apparently filled by cyber robbery. Mr. Fisher's whereabouts are unknown, but they're of interest to any number of law enforcement organizations worldwide. While there was at one time suspicion that Phineas Fisher was a sock puppet for Russian intelligence, consensus in the U.S., at least, is that he probably is the hacktivist he represents himself to be. And finally, CISA, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, marked the first anniversary of its formation on Saturday. Many happy returns to Director Krebs and his crew. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, and he is also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Uh, Through the magic of pre-recording, as we air this segment, (laughs) you are actually attending... The NICE conference. Right. Uh, Give us a rundown. First of all, what is that conference? Well, it's a NICE conference. Uh, It sounds like it. It's Uh, it's in the name.
0: Right. NICE is actually (laughs) the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, Mm. and it's uh, a program out of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. Yeah. So NICE was started in 2009 by President Obama. Mm. Uh, based on some previous work by President Bush called the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative. Mm. Uh, And it focuses on educating people to get them into the cybersecurity workforce. That's really what the purpose of the NICE program is.
1: I see. And so you head out there representing uh, Johns Hopkins. Yep. And so what is in it for Hopkins as, as an organization to participate?
0: We are actually there to contribute our input there. Mm. You know, we have a master's of science in security informatics. It's a 20-year-old program. And so we're there representing education or being part of the educational voice in the room.
1: Can you give us a sense for the organization of the event itself? What, what ha- if someone attends there? What can they expect to find?
0: Well, it's typical uh, conference fair, right? It's got uh, it's got a keynote speakers, usually pretty good keynote speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, the closing keynote was from I can't remember the guy's name, but he was from McAfee, talking about the things I've talked about here before about how the cybersecurity skills gap is in part a courage gap on the part of companies. Yeah. Um, this year, there'll be a keynote from uh, somebody from NIST. Of course, during the keynotes, there are breakout sessions where you can go to individual talks and things. And in fact, this is where uh, where I first picked up on, on some ideas on how to run our CTF programs at the Information Security Institute. Hmm. So we have our students participate in these programs, and it's actually pretty important for their skills, to build their skills for it. And, and this semester, we've had students participate in three of these, and one team has actually uh, made it to the finals in the Maryland Cyber Challenge. Hmm. We're happy with that, uh, so that's one of the things we get out of it. But they they're, they talk about a whole mess of different things here that are relevant to industry, academia, and government.
1: So really, an opportunity for folks who are on the educational side of things to to get together, exchange uh, best practices, mm-hmm. ideas, and so forth.
0: Yep, and then to talk to uh, talk to other people across. Uh, different sectors like industry and government.
1: All right. Well, it is the NICE Conference. uh, Safe travels. Thank you. I hope you get a lot out of it. And uh, we'll see you back here when you get back. Yep. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.